There was a time in my life growing up where we lived in a trailer that was about the same distance as a parsonage is from the church. Uh, the church owned the trailer, but we rented the trailer. So you live that close, what are you going to do, right? You're going to go to church. And I can remember singing that song right there in church and people coming up to me saying, you don't have to sing that loud, right? <laughs> I was probably 10 years old or something. I just thought you were just supposed to scream it out as loud as you could. And um, it was a great church, Berean Baptist Church in Shannon, Illinois, and a church that God used in many ways in my life. Romans chapter 12. We've gone through 11 chapters of Romans. We're now entering at this hinge point, this, this new section of Romans, Romans chapter 12. Do you know what an oxymoron is? When I grew up, an oxymoron was a nerd with zits, but that, that would only hit you if you were in the 80s. Um, an oxymoron is two words used together that have or seem to have opposite meanings. It's a figure of speech in which apparently contradictory terms appear in conjunction. We actually use a lot of them in normal speech, like bittersweet, or deafening silence, or freezer burn, or minor miracle, or only choice, or old news. Some are kind of odd, like crash landing, or jumbo shrimp, right? Or I like this one, plastic silverware. We've all said that. When you think about it a second, it's like, wait a minute. I found this on Google, and I thought it was pretty clever. It's the Oxymoron Museum with rooms like current history or new artifacts or a room like lost discoveries. And the museum has, is complete with a down escalator and wireless outlets now, some oxymorons are just impossible, right? Like airplane food or government ethics, right? Or Brown's Super Bowl. I mean, some things, some things are just impossible. Well, there are really a lot of them. And there's one in our passage today, which is, as I was looking up these oxymorons, was actually included in one of the lists. In our passage today is living sacrifices, living sacrifices. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12 and follow along as I read verses 1 through 2. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, now we pray to you, so thankful for your word, so thankful for just these short sentences that mean so much, that, that pack such truth. Lord, bring it alive to us today. Teach us from your word. And spirit, challenge us and change us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first word 
And verse 1 is that word appeal or urge or beseech. It literally means coming alongside someone in order to give help or to give aid. It's used to connote exhorting or admonishing or encouraging. Jesus uses this very word in the noun form to describe the Holy Spirit as the divine helper. It's also translated as, with the Holy Spirit as a divine comforter and counselor and advocate. See, this word appeal is more than just saying, you know, you should think about this. No, this is urgent. This is urging. This is appeal. This is beseeching. This is exhorting. This has come alongside of us to help us make these decisions. It's urgent. It's, it's with the force of a command. It's not an option. This is an admonition that carries the full weight of Paul's apostleship. But yet, he beseeches them. He beseeches us. He urges us rather than outright commanding us to do it. Why? Because he thinks, he wants them to to see themselves as willingly accepting the spiritual challenge. I think he's beseeching us because he wants us to buy in, to willingly accept this urgency of his spiritual challenge. What he's calling them and us to do here can't be done just through rote obedience. It must capture our will. It must come from our desire. He is saying, please, I beg you, do this. These two verses in Romans are fundamental. They're essential to the regular daily walk of a growing Christian's life. And Paul is beseeching us. He's pleading with us to make these truths our own. His urgency should awaken with us our own urgency to commit to do these verses. Then the next word... Uh, in the Greek, there is a word, therefore. This is perhaps one of the most important therefores in the Bible. Whenever you see a therefore, you're supposed to ask the question, what is it therefore? Therefore is a concluding word and an opening word. It signifies that something new is starting, but it also signifies that that something new is based on what has just concluded. Therefore means as a result of, or consequently, or for this reason. So what just concluded? What's the result? Not just chapter 11, but this hinge, therefore, is for the whole of the first 11 chapters. What is just concluded? Paul's great teaching on salvation, that justification is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. On the basis of all this amazing doctrine and truth through these first 11 chapters, therefore now live it out. As you hold chapters 1 through 11 in your mind, now let it come alive in your life. After 11 chapters of indicatives, now come imperatives. After 11 chapters of facts and truths and doctrine, now comes the basis on what to do, the commands on all that teaching. After 11 chapters of telling us all that Jesus has done, now we can talk about what we must do. For it is only his doing that enables our doing. 
All the commands are to be rooted in Christ and what he has done. Can you see how important this is? This isn't just the structure of Paul's letter. The structure of the letter informs us what must come first. What is of first importance? Christ always first. Jesus always preeminent. All we do is but a response to all that God has already done. Then in verse 1, he calls them brothers, family. Following Christ is for his family. It's, It's a family thing. God is our father. Jesus is our elder brother. It's intimate. It's family. It's kin. Then next he summarizes in four words the essence of our motivation, the mercies of God. I urge you, on the basis of all that I have written, my brothers and sisters, because of the mercies of God. Mercy here is plural, mercies. This not only points to the overabundant amount of mercy, but also to the superlative nature of God's mercy. God's mercy is lavish and incomparable. It is beautiful and powerful. God's mercy is the basis of all spiritual life. God so richly did not give us what our sins deserve, but instead so richly gave us what his love so abundantly wanted to give. All of this comes before what Paul is actually exhorting us and urging us to do. All of this comes as a preamble To the urgency. Today we're going to see two things that the Apostle Paul urges us to do. I urge you, on the basis of all that I've written, my brothers and sisters, because of the abundant mercies of God, to offer yourselves in verse 1. And secondly, to obey God's will in verse 2. The first action Paul urges is to offer, to present Another way this word is translated is to yield. Remember back in Romans 6? It's this word that's repeated over and over and over again about presenting and offering, about yielding the members of our bodies to God. Romans 6 verse 13 says, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as instruments of righteousness. You see, the idea behind the presenting of this yielding is that it's a willing offering. This isn't just something we're supposed to do. This is something we're supposed to want to do. This is something we're supposed to be eager to do. This is our willful, eager response to God. And what are we supposed to willfully offer? Our bodies as living sacrifice. Like in Romans 6, I think when Paul is using the word body here, he's not just referring to our physical bodies, but to the totality of our being, every part of ourselves. But I do think that he's used the word body here very specifically to make sure that his readers understood that our relationship with God is not just spiritual, It's not just in our soul or in our hearts, but our relationship with God includes his lordship over our bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
puts it this way, our bodies are for the Lord, and that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's within you, and that we were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. One commentator said of verse 1, that this blunt reference to our bodies was calculated to shock some of Paul's Greek readers. See, it's helpful to understand that there was this false, dualistic Greek philosophy that dominated the Roman world in New Testament times. They considered the soul and the spirit to be inherently good and of, of great value, but that the body was inherently evil and of no value and of no importance. One wrote, because the body was deemed worthless and would eventually die anyway, what was done to it or with it did not matter. For obvious reasons, that view opened the door to every sort of immorality. But not only did this false dualism produce gross immorality, but dead bodies were just thrown away like trash. Sick people were just discarded, infants abandoned in the streets. Since the body is of no value, it could be treated like it had no value. But because of God's value that he had given our bodies in his creation, one of the earliest and greatest testimonies of the church was their care for the sick was their care for the dying, the orphaned, and even the dead. The church started the very first hospitals, the very first orphanages, and even the first cemeteries in the Roman world because God created a body and wants us to glorify him by the use of our bodies, early Christianity, in the face of this widespread, false, philosophical dualism not only sought to obey God in the use of their bodies, but reached out to a world in need, showing them the God-given importance and value and dignity of his creation, our bodies. The theological implications of God's value for our bodies as image bearers of God changed the way early Christians lived their lives changed the way that they ministered to the people around them. And so it should be with us. Folks, our human bodies aren't just clumps of cells. They aren't just physical material of little value. This biblical truth should not only make us pro-life as far as unborn babies are concerned, for they aren't just a clump of cells. Their little bodies are God's purposeful creation. But this biblical truth should also make us pro-life in every area, encouraging adoption and supporting orphanages and defending the elderly and upholding the value and importance of health care. And the truth is that Christianity is by far the number one supplier in the world of care for orphans of care for the elderly, and of offering health care to those who don't have it. Why? Because God said there's intrinsic value in our bodies. 
So much so that he makes our bodies his dwelling place. So much so that he wants us to glorify him with our bodies. So much so that one day we are going to forever exist in our resurrected, glorified bodies. Do you see it? This biblical belief in the intrinsic value of every human is one of the distinguishing marks of true Christianity. Paul used the word body here on purpose to specifically teach to this pagan Roman world that God values what he creates. Well, the application of God's truth here is is clear for us. We must, as Christians, stand strong in God's truth that all human life matters. That God has given great importance and unbelievable worth to our bodies. And we must support, promote, and minister from that truth to our community and to our world. Now Paul's main point here is that the surrendered Christian life to Christ requires every part of ourselves to be offered, to be yielded willingly to him, our mind, our soul, and our bodies. Jesus said in Luke 10, 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and and with all your soul and with all your strength of your body and with all your mind. What we do with our bodies is of spiritual importance. In our closing hymn today, we're going to be singing this truth. Take my life, take my hand, take my feet, take my voice, take my lips, take myself, and let them be consecrated ever, only, all for thee. We're supposed to offer our bodies as what? A living sacrifice. I love this quote from R.C. Sproul. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament is over. The detailed descriptions that were given to the people of God on how to fulfill their obligations in the temple and in the places of the worship pointed ahead to what was going to take place in the future. They were shadows of the full-orbed light that was yet to break through. They anticipated and typified the perfect sacrifice that was offered by our Lord on the cross once and for all. So when the perfect sacrifice was made, that was the end of the Old Testament sacrificial system. No longer do worshipers come with sheep and goats and bulls and grain offerings and burn them before the Lord as sacrifices for their sins. But, he said, there is still a New Testament sacrificial system. It's not a sacrifice that we give in order to make an atonement, but a sacrifice that we give because an atonement has already been made for us. What a great quote that is. It's not a sacrifice that we give in order to make an atonement, but living our lives as a living sacrifice is a sacrifice that we give because an atonement has already been made. God does not ask us, to bring in our livestock and burn at the altar. He asks us to give ourselves, to put ourselves alive on the altar. To be a Christian means to live a life of sacrifice, a life of presentation, making a gift 
of ourselves to God. The teaching here in Romans 12.1 is not to make a sacrifice, but to be the sacrifice. How powerful is it that the first great application, the first to do from Paul in light of all that he had just taught in all of these chapters, the first application is die. That's the first application. To die to ourselves and thus to live for God alone. Jesus taught this in Luke chapter 9. Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus lived to die. We die to live. God doesn't want your gifts He wants you. God doesn't want your talents. He wants you. God doesn't want your money. He wants you. God doesn't want your time. He wants you. It's critically important to understand the Christian life is not about sometimes doing what God wants you to do. Well, I I go to church mostly. I, I give in the offering often. I'm I'm really nice to my neighbors. I let them borrow my lawnmower every now and then even. I, sometimes I even volunteer once in a while at church. Is that what it means to be a Christian? Folks, that is not what it means to be a Christian. The Christian life is a 24-7, 365, daily dying to self and wonderfully surrendering to Christ's will. We are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness all day, every day, and in every way. Jesus is not the added on deity of our lives. Do you get here what verse 1 is teaching us? We're to offer the totality of our being as a set apart, pleasing, living sacrifice to God. That is what it means to be a Christian. Verse 1 ends saying that doing that is our spiritual worship, that it is our reasonable service. Living our lives as set apart, pleasing, living sacrifices to God is our spiritual worship to God. It is our reasonable service to God. These last two words of verse 1 have differing and varying connotations. In this context, the, the first word translated as spiritual is a good translation. For it clearly is that, but the root of this word is different. The root of this word spiritual is actually where we get the word logic and logical from. The offering of our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, is spiritual logic. It makes spiritual sense. Because of all that God has done, the spiritually logical thing to do is to give him all that we are, to be a living sacrifice. Perhaps you've heard of the renowned missionary, David Livingston, I presume. He wrote this 
in his journal. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending as much of my life as I have in Africa. Can that be called sacrifice? Which is simply paid back as a small part of the great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Away with such a word, such a view, such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. You see, our spiritual, logical response to God is offering our lives to him as a living sacrifice. Now, the word worship used here is a technical term, actually, that's used to describe the service the priest would do in the temple. It is service that is worship. It is service for God, which is worship. Being a living sacrifice is our duty. It is our reasonable service. It is our logical worship. Offering our lives as a living sacrifice to God is not above and beyond the call of duty. No, but rather it is the very duty. It is the very obligation of every Christian. J.B. Phillips in his New Testament paraphrase translates verse 1 like this. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give your bodies as a living sacrifice consecrated to him and acceptable by him. As the hymn writer said, Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Paul urges us in light of the innumerable blessings to offer all who we are to God as a living, holy, pleasing sacrifice. Our second point today in verse 2 is where Paul urges us to live out that life in obedience to God's will. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and and acceptable and perfect. Well, the first thing he has there is the negative, what not to do. What are Christians not to do who are offering their lives as a living sacrifice to God? They are not to be conformed to this world. This isn't talking about outward appearance. This isn't talking about just not looking like the worldly people that are around us. This is talking about our thinking. We can clearly see that because when he says the positive command next, he talks about it as being the renewal of our minds. This is talking about not letting the thinking of the world conform our minds to its way of thinking. The battle for our spiritual lives against this world is in our brains. It's in our thinking. It's through our thinking that the world wants to press us into its mold. Christ is actually calling us to be nonconformists. He doesn't want us to think the way this world thinks. We are to refuse to conform to the thinking sinful patterns of this world. We are refused to conform to the wrong thinking of this world. We are refused to conform to the selfish 
focus of this world. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Folks, this is an important application for us. In our day, right now, the world has more ways than ever before to try to get us to conform the pattern of our thinking after what it wants. We have to recognize this, and we have to combat it in our lives. We have to guard our minds. We have to watch what we watch. We have to shield what we see. We have to not let the thinking of this world become our thinking. So we need to evaluate. Are you being overly influenced by the world around you? What are you inputting into your mind? What through social media or through internet videos, through the news, through TV, through music, What do you need to cut out of your life to guard your mind and your thinking so that you will not be conformed to the world around you? This is an important point of evaluation. Don't let this world conform you into its way of thinking. But instead, he says, instead we're to be transformed by God from the inside out with him renewing our minds. Again, J.B. Phillips gets it right by saying, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. From this word transformed, we get this great word metamorphosis. You know what a caterpillar does in that cocoon? Changing from the inside out? into that amazingly beautiful butterfly, that's exactly what God wants to do for us. We're talking real, substantive, demonstrative change, transformation, metamorphosis. As I've said in the past, salvation is not just a transaction, it's a transformation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, both of these words, conform and transform, in the Greek, are in the present tense, showing continual action. That tells us that not conforming to the world is something that we have to continually be aware of. We have to constantly not allow that to happen. And being transformed by the renewal of our minds is something that we have to continually do. We have to constantly pursue. And both of these lifelong are biblical pursuits. Both of these are ongoing, continual areas of obedience. And interestingly, both words are also in the passive meaning that the action is being done to the subject, right? It is the world who is trying to conform us. It is God who is trying to transform us. One, we're supposed to not allow it to happen to us. The other is something we're supposed to engage in. We're supposed to fully allow 
to happen to us. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. So how are we to be transformed? One wrote, the means by which we are to be transformed is through the renewing of our minds. We have to relearn things from a new perspective. We, we need new values. We need to train our minds so that we begin to think God's thoughts after him. God's word is the instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to renew our minds, which transforms our lives. One commentator said the transformed and renewed mind is the mind saturated with and controlled by the word of God. It is a mind that is set on things above, not on things of the earth, whether good or bad. When anything happens in our lives, our immediate, almost reflective response should be biblical. Only the mind that is constantly being renewed by God's Spirit, working through God's Word, is pleasing to God. Only such a mind is able to make our lives a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. How do we renew our minds? Through the Spirit of God, using the Word of God. What marks a true Christian? not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by God. John Stott wrote, I've recently come back from India where I heard a little Hindu girl brought up in a strict Hindu family who had come across Christians. Suddenly asked, uh, somebody asked her one day uh, what she thought a Christian was. She thought for a few moments and replied, well, as far as I can see, a Christian is somebody who is different from everybody else. John Stott concludes, would that it was true of us. Not conformed to this world, but transformed by God, renewing our mind. Verse 2 ends with the result of being transformed by the renewal of our minds, knowing and doing God's will. See, only a a renewed mind can test and approve God's will. Only a renewed mind can discern and accept God's will. Only a renewed mind can determine and do God's will. Do you want to determine God's will in your life? You have to have your mind transformed by God's word. Do you want to do God's will in your life? You have to have your mind transformed by the spirit of God. What Paul is saying is that not only will the transformed-minded Christian discern God's will, but they will find out that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. And having found that out, they would joyously put it into practice. See, the ultimate goal is not to have our minds renewed. The ultimate goal is not to gain more information. The ultimate goal is not just to have better theology No, the ultimate goal is to know and do God's will. The ultimate goal is spiritual character change that brings glory to Jesus Christ. The ultimate goal is a life transformed from the inside out that better reflects the image of Jesus, our Savior. What are the stages of spiritual transformation? First, offer Offer your whole being to God as a living sacrifice 
It is your only spiritually logical response. Two is avoid. Avoid allowing the world's thinking to infiltrate your thinking and try to conform you to it. Third, we are to pursue, to pursue the renewal of our minds through God's word, through the Holy Spirit. And then fourth, we're able to discern, we're able to desire, and we're able to actually do the very will of God. That's how one is spiritually transformed. Someone once said, the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. The hymn writer wrote, as you're all on the altar of sacrifice laid, your heart does a spirit control. You can only be blessed and have peace and sweet rest as you yield him your body and soul. We have this tendency, don't we, of crawling off the altar. The challenge before us today is to be a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God, set apart to do his will, not conform to this world, transformed by God. Are you yielding him your body and soul? Are you denying yourself? taking up your cross daily to follow your Savior. Jesus lived to die. We die to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now in this amazing scripture, these amazing verses that teach us such wonderful truth, well, Lord, what they really do as well is challenge us to change, challenge us to be transforming followers of Christ. Challenge us as the only spiritually logic conclusion could be to offer ourselves, our whole being, as a living sacrifice. Not, not with this world, but with you. Transform so that we can know your will and do your will. All to the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, take our hands, take our feet, take our lips, take our voice, take all that we are only, always for you. In Jesus' name, amen.